Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, and thank you for joining us for a very special episode of Pantsuit Politics. Russia invaded Ukraine a year ago, and as Sarah and I considered how to mark that time and reflect on all that transpired before the invasion and what has transpired since, we knew we wanted to talk with someone with real meaningful expertise in Ukraine and someone who has been in relationship with Ukraine. And we could think of no better person than former Ambassador Marie Ivanovich. Ambassador Yovanovitch served as the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine from 2016 to 2019, and that is just one piece of a long, dedicated career in public service that she's documented in her book, Lessons from the Edge. We were so honored to spend an hour with Ambassador Yovanovitch and so enriched by the conversation. And so without further ado, I just want to get right into sharing that discussion with all of you. Ambassador Yovanovitch, we are so thrilled and honored to have you here today. I wonder if we could go back in time a little bit. And I know that to fully understand the war right now, you have to go way back in time. But could you take us to the Orange Revolution and just tell us a little bit about Ukraine as a developing country and the relationship with Russia? 
So I will try to keep this brief because as you noted, it's super complicated and there's so many different elements uh, extending over the centuries. But in 1991, the Soviet Union, as we all recall, dissolved and it left 15 new countries, including Russia and Ukraine in its wake. And all of these countries had to figure out where they were going. And most of them said, you know, we want to be a democracy. We want to be a market economy. But, you know, the leadership pretty much, I think, without exception, was the same as it had been the day before mm-hmm. of the Soviet Union for each of these new countries. You know, they all had been, you know, in the Politburo, the first secretaries of their respective republics. And so these were pretty much, again, without exception, old men who had no idea what it meant to uh, create a democracy or a market economy. They they didn't really understand the concepts and they didn't know what, what to do. And so, you know, many of these countries, including Russia and Ukraine, uh, of their own volition, I mean, this is what they wanted to do, started that journey. They asked the foreign communities, um, including the U.S., but not only the U.S., you know, France, Germany, the U.K., the EU, international financial institutions to help. But as we all know, reform is very, very difficult. And who pays the price? It's always the poorest people. It was just a very, very difficult, I don't even want to say transition, because Russia never fully made it, sadly, mm. as we know, but journey, um, shall we say. And for Ukraine, which was more successful, it was slow and painful in the 1990s. But, you know, by the end of the 1990s, they were starting to have the beginnings of civil society. And what is civil society? That's, you know, like you and me uh, going out and joining the PTA or joining, uh, you know, the beautification society, you know, for your city or calling up your um, mayor and saying, hey, there's a really dangerous crossroads here and you need to put a stop sign here because there have been too many accidents and getting your neighbors to sign a petition. It's citizens being you know, active, involved, engaged, educated, and uh, holding leadership accountable. That is, um, I mean, obviously the backbone of democracy is free and fair elections, but civil society is the backbone of that. So that was starting to develop in Ukraine In the late 1990s, you had investigative journalists, you had people creating their own little organizations of, you know, whatever mattered to them, Uh, not necessarily in politics, big politics, but whatever mattered to them. And um, again, just another trip down, uh, you know, back back in time. Why wasn't civil society active before in um, places like Ukraine and Russia? because of the Communist Party. The Communist Party wanted to control everything. They stamped out any kind of initiative, even if it was the chess club, because if you had groups of people meeting together, you know, they could start talking about stuff. Mm -hmm. They could start criticizing, and that would be bad. So everything had to have the imprimatur of the Communist Party. And so people in 1991 didn't have the skills and the mindset to, you know, sort of take matters into their own hands. And when I say matters, I don't mean, again, big politics. I mean, you know, the day-to-day stuff that all of us do every day to make sure our lives are better and our communities are better. You know, fast forward to the 2000s. In 2004, the Orange Revolution, which I think is where you started the question, there were presidential elections and there was a clear favorite uh, in the country, uh, a guy named Yushchenko, who was actually poisoned during the campaign, if you can believe it. He lost in the second round and people took to the streets in the fall of 2004 and Ukraine in the fall is cold. People just stuck it out. And President Kuchma, who in many ways I am very critical of, 
but he did the most important thing for the democracy of Ukraine. He allowed the people to demonstrate. He did not use force against them. And he allowed the court process of whether or not there should be a rerun of the elections to go forward without intervention. That was unusual in those times um, and actually still to a certain extent today. And the court ruled that the elections had been fiddled and they were run again and Yushchenko, the favorite, did win. So the people, though, they were like, yay, we won. And we're going to leave, you know, the governing of the country to the politicians because, you know, we did our thing. We're going to go back to our regular lives. And unfortunately, Yushchenko was uh, a real disappointment as, as president. He was not the reformer that people uh, thought. He, uh, well, he had been a reformer. He, he did not continue in that vein effectively as, 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 as president. Because of uh, his incompetence and because of the infighting with his prime minister, uh, at the end, uh, the next elections, Yanukovych won in uh, 2009. And he started off kind of okay, but pretty pretty quickly he um, took corruption in Ukraine to an entirely new level. As a result, he was not very popular. <laughs> and there was even a lot of uh, opposition among the elites because he was taking their fair share of the cut too, right? And so <laughs> that engendered a lot of resentment. In 2013, Ukraine was supposed to sign an agreement in November uh, with the EU about, you know, become closer to the EU. Ukrainian people really wanted that, not for political reasons, for economic reasons, because it would have made um, trading and uh, doing business with the EU easier. It also would have opened up some um, uh, the possibility for educational exchanges, for easier travel to Europe. You know, a lot of young people wanted that. They wanted you know, to be able to go to Paris. He doesn't want to do that. But they also <laughs> want people to get an education, whether it's as an exchange student or a four-year college, whatever it might be. And Putin kind of inserted himself and offered Ukraine a $15 billion loan with $3 billion um, payable immediately. And Yanukovych decided that that was the better course. So kind of completely unexpectedly. I mean, nobody... Uh, was prepared for this, uh, including his closest staff. He actually went to the meeting but refused to sign, which is very unusual. I mean, usually these things are scripted to the to the max. And you know, when he came back and you know it was clear to the Ukrainian people what had happened, a bunch of college students, you know, went to the square to the Maidan, as it's called, and protested. And it was a small, peaceful protest. But as often happens with authoritarian leaders, he overplayed his hand and he sent down the police. And an investigative journalist uh, named Mustafa Nayem, he Facebooked and he said, what's going on? Are we going to support our students? And people went to the square. And every day, more people went to the square. And there were, you know, ups and downs and everything else. But it went on through February of 2014. And ironically, there was actually a deal that was cut with the EU and people on the, uh, the leaders of the people on the square, as well as um, Yanukovych, to um, to allow him to stay in power, um, move elections forward to December 20, 2014. Um, but, you know, the ink wasn't even dry on that, and he fled the country to Russia. And so that was the revolution of dignity, the second big revolution in Ukraine. And what that revolution meant was, you know, we want to live in dignity. We want to live according to the rule of law, which means that the same law applies to you as applies to me, no matter how powerful you are. 
And if you are stealing, as Yanukovych was, and that $3 billion down payment from Putin, that went right into his pocket and right back to Russia, that you will be held accountable. We want to live according to Western values. We want to be able to send our kids, you know, for an education in the EU. We want to be able to do business with the EU. It's not that we want to live in the EU, but we want the same kinds of freedoms um, that they have there and the same kinds of accountability that they have there. So that was in February of 2014. Uh, several months later, there were uh, elections when President Poroshenko came, uh, came to power. Um, so I'll stop there. I think you said you wanted a short answer. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I know it's not really available, a short answer. <laughs> uh, and I want to, before we keep moving forward, in your book, Lessons from the Edge, which I highly recommend to everybody, it's incredible, you highlight something that I think helps me so much put pieces together in both Russia and Ukraine, because we we talk about corruption and we talk about and we say corruption and it almost starts to feel like like a character flaw of the people as opposed to like, well, how did we get here? Why are there these oligarchs? And when you talk about, OK, well, the USSR dissolved and this is what they did with the state property. Can you explain that? Because that and this is how we got to this place with oligarchs and corruption, both in Ukraine and in Russia. And this I thought that was so helpful. Can you explain that? Yeah. And, and and one thing I just want to say about the revolution of dignity, you know, as, as you said, you know, we when we think about Ukraine, we often think, well, now we think about how brave and mm-hmm. resolute the people are in, in, in the war. But before, you know, the next word was always corruption. And why was that? the reason was because the Ukrainian people stood up and said, we have corrupt leaders and we want to hold them accountable and we want to do something about this. And, you know, we all know that making those kinds of changes systemically is very, very hard. But they they got a start on it in 2014. I mean, before 2014, you know, we in the U.S. government were not talking about corruption in Ukraine. It was the Ukrainian people that put that into the conversation. And that gave, you know, because you know, there's 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 often this view that somehow the U.S. imposes assistance on uh, countries and they're forced to do things they don't want to do. You know, I'm not saying that there aren't some tough negotiations where countries um, do things that um, are very difficult because they want our assistance. They don't need to take our assistance, but we have conditionality that, you know, we're not going to, you know, if you're going to throw good money after bad, we're, we're not going to be supporting that. You're going to be diverting the funds to, you know, special people. We're not going to be supporting that. We didn't really talk about corruption before because it wasn't supported uh, within the government. I mean, I I was there in, uh, you know, from 2001 to 2004 as the number two. And if we had said, talked about corruption in Ukraine, the president would have escorted us out of his office. Contrast that to my arrival in Ukraine in 2016, where when I had my first meeting with um, President Poroshenko, where I presented my my credentials from the pres- from our president, he raised corruption and talked about what they are doing and how they are partnering with us on this. The Ukrainian people understand that they have a challenge. It is most challenging to them. And they're the ones who who, who raised it. And they're the ones who are most intent on, on this. And um, so I think that's very important to understand. So going back in history, the Communist Party itself was a very corrupt institution. And so some were more equal than others. And so they got, you know, special apartments. They were the ones who got the good university slots for their kids. It was a whole tiered system of who got what special privileges and um, extra money uh, on, on, on the side. 
And, you know, that system, I mean, just because the Soviet Union fell apart doesn't mean that that system went away. It was all the same people in the same job. And so they kind of inherited that. And that was, you know, fine with them because they were benefiting. And so, but then as society became more active and involved and educated, they were like, well, wait, wait a minute, you know, this, this isn't right. And that was, you know, the very, very slow evolution in the 1990s and um, the, the aughts that I was describing before. But in parallel with that, when the Ukrainian and the Russian people and governments and others came to the international community and said, you know, how do we how do we change from a uh, command economy where, you know, somebody in Moscow decides every economic decision? You know, how many boots are going to be made in a particular factory in Kharkiv and, you know, what style the boots are going to be and everything else. And, you know, then 5000 boots of exactly the same kind are put out all over the Soviet Union. And if you want boots that year, that's what you're going to buy. You know, there's not going to be a choice. The market does not decide in a command economy. So how do you go from that kind of a command economy to a market economy? where there is, you know, so much flexibility, so much flux. And when the leadership in a country, not just the top dogs, but, you know, all the way down, they weren't brought up on what a market economy is. You know, I barely understand it. (laughs) But, you know, I kind of understand about supply and demand and, you know, some of the other basic principles. So this was very hard. And of course, the state owned all property. You know, even your apartment, the state owned your your apartment, your apartment buildings, um, but they also owned, you know, the big mega, mega, mega corporations. And so it was decided that in order to uh, divest the state of all of this, there would be privatization and they would print out vouchers, uh, you know, for a share in, in you know, the factories uh, and the property. And, you know, there were stages of privatization. You know, at this time, there was a lot of chaos because the old social contract of the party is going to take care of you and make every decision for you, that went away. There was nothing really to replace it yet. The ruble, you know, just tanked, um, as did the hryvna, the Ukrainian currency. And so people's, you know, life savings, uh, such as it was, went away. And so it was a very difficult time for many Russians, many Ukrainians, many others. And so as this privatization process, you know, started, um, people were given vouchers. And, you know, this is to people who have no concept of what a market economy is. And they're told, you know, now you have a share in the, in, in, in this factory. Very theoretical. When you're wondering, how am I going to put food on the table for my children tonight? Mm-hmm. And so, of course, there were some people who understood, you know, the, 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 the powerful, the ruthless, um, the criminal, And the criminal and the security services really made out very well uh, in this deal. And so they would go around and they would buy up your vouchers for for nothing because people were grateful to get money for dinner that night when, of course, what they were giving away was a share in a, a factory or whatever it might be. You know, they accumulated all of this money and property and um, an influence. And over time, they became known as the oligarchs. This left a very sour taste in the mouths of many Russians. And by the time I got there in 1993, they were like, you know, if this is what capitalism is, if this is what democracy is, you can keep it because we like the things. So it was it was a really rough time uh, for many, many ordinary uh, Russians. 
And so the ones who were um, making out literally like bandits, but, you know, they really prospered. Uh, and it was truly the wild, wild west when I was there in Moscow with shootouts and broad daylight between, you know, warring clans and so forth. But, you know, some of the things that these people were doing other than killing each other were actually not illegal because, you know, the system of regulations and laws that have developed over the centuries in uh, in the West was not in place in, in Russia in order to protect against abuses such as um, I have described. So it was a very, very difficult time. Well, and I just have to imagine, I like how you talk about your family, like when you're trying to build civil society and they're like, for what? Like, to what purpose? You know, what if they can't see, like you said, like they have no, no parameter, no framework for like, what would I be gathering in a group to build? This, this is how the system works, whether you call it capitalism or communism, we're still at the bottom. And it's just so discouraging. I just think it's helpful. Like when you right now... If we go all the way back up today when we're watching Russian society and we're we're watching protests, but then we're seeing, you know, big parades for Putin and we're so confused and we like, how could you? I think that just adds a lot of really important context. If you don't have any if you don't have any concept of what civil society or rule of law or a functioning capitalistic system looks like when somebody tells you, well, you're getting screwed. You're like, what what's the difference? What's the difference? Yeah. Yeah. I think this march through that kind of hope and disappointment for both the Russian people and the Ukrainian people is really helpful. So can we pick up with President Poroshenko? Because he feels like part a continuation of that in some respects to me. And I wonder if if that's what you saw while you were there. Yeah, of the good and the bad. So um, there are six major oligarchs in Ukraine and Poroshenko was one of them. But he came to power. Uh, he had been in every government since about the year 2000. And he had come to power on a very overwhelming mandate for reform. In Ukrainian politics, there are usually, which is often the case in Europe, there are are two rounds of presidential elections. So in the first round, there could be like 40 candidates. And then the top two get winnowed out into the second round. And in all previous presidential elections, um, there there have been two rounds. In this presidential election, when Poroshenko won, he was the first and only um, president to win in the first round. So he had a strong mandate and he had a strong mandate for reform and anti-corruption. And he understood that. Moreover, the other oligarchs also understood that. And so reform is um, often very difficult because you're breaking somebody's rice bowl, right? If uh, funds are going to go one way or uh, funds are not going to be diverted into somebody's pocket, you know, somebody loses. Um, they should lose. But, you know, they don't feel that way. So they're going to fight back. But there was a moment in 2014, which is before I I arrived, where reforms were difficult, but still very possible. And they pushed through a number of anti-corruption reforms, as well as other reforms. He had a great prime minister who was very, uh, very courageous. But, you know, as in our country, there's only a moment for reforms. Uh, That window does not last forever. And so very hard to do everything all at once, um, despite the movie. (laughs) (laughs) And and so some of the people who had stolen from the state before were not held to account. And so they started, you know, feeling, well, you know, I didn't go to jail. I wasn't punished. I wasn't held accountable. 
you know, maybe I can start pushing back on some of this. So over time, they started pushing back and um, became harder and harder. By 2016, August 2016, when I arrived, it was a more difficult environment. Um, There were still reforms were still moving forward, but it was much, much harder. So take us to the pre-invasion period and how you think about what happened with Crimea before this invasion and why we kind of settled in the world on calling that an annexation and just what is different about this invasion than what happened in Crimea? That's a big question, I know, but would love to hear your thoughts. You're used to big questions. We feel comfortable. (laughs) So Crimea, you know, the Russians are sort of cherry picking history. And and so they're saying, well, you know, Khrushchev back in the 1950s, he gave it, um, you know, that territory as a gift to Ukraine when it was never envisioned uh, that the Soviet Union would break apart. And Crimea is historically... Russian. And so we should have it back. And, you know, many Russians uh, believe that. And they've been very active in putting that out there, uh, you know, disinforming the world. uh, And a lot of people accept that, including, frankly, uh, former President Trump. But the reality is um, that, you know, history doesn't start when the Russians wanted to start before the Russians had uh, Crimea as part of their empire. It was first held by the Crimean Tatars, hence the name Crimea, and uh, was part of that Khanate, their own empire. And then it was part of the Ottoman Empire. And then it became part of the Russian Empire. Then when um, it became the Soviet Union, it was part of the Soviet Union as part of Ukraine. Well, at first as part of Russia, then as part of Ukraine, when Khrushchev gave that, that part of it to, to Ukraine, because it's uh, geographically close uh, to, uh, to, to Ukraine. You know, when independence came in 1991, there were referendums. There was a referendum in Ukraine. And every oblast, which is like a state and territory like Crimea, voted um, whether to become independent or not and be a, a part of the new Ukrainian state. And they all voted for that, including Crimea. So that was 1991. Moving forward, public opinion polling showed that through the next 20 years, there was no desire for Crimea to become independent or to become part of Russia. Um, you know, they considered themselves to be part of Ukraine. But, I mean, Putin had other ideas. Um, I think Putin, you know, sees himself, he's quite open about this as being the spiritual heir of Peter the Great, one of the Tsars who gathered in the Russian lands and, you know, uh, made the Russian Empire great, uh, bigger and greater in, uh, in Putin's view. You know, he he wanted that land back for uh, for Russia, you know, for his, you know, for reasons of his own uh, in terms of how he stands in history, but also as part of extending the Russian empire and also strategically, um, because the Russians have long desired uh, to have a warm water port in the Black Sea. And they have long desired uh, to um, these are international waters, the, the, the Black Sea. I mean, it's huge, but they want to make it a Russian lake. They want to control the whole thing. And that is, you know, not acceptable to, you know, most of the countries in the world who want to use those commercial shipping lanes, uh, among other things. And of course, there are a number of NATO countries that are also uh, on the periphery of, of the Black Sea. So during the chaos of the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, Putin, you know, put his longstanding, it should be noted, plans in motion to annex, you know, to take over Crimea. And he did that quite successfully um, using something that the Russians call maskirovka, you know, mask, masking what their intentions were. So they sent in armed people, but they were uh, and in uniform, but they had no insignia and they would not say, you know, who they were with, 
you know, obviously government intelligence knew who they were with, but Putin was saying, no, it's not us. It's not us. It took him a year to admit that, yeah, in fact, it was Russia. And it was hard, I think, for Western nations to figure out what to do. And by, uh, and frankly, they never did actually figure out what to do. And, you know, within a month, Crimea, well, within a week, Crimea was under Russian control, under, uh, you know, we call the, the, the men in the green uniforms, the little green men. So it was under Russian control. And then uh, within a month, there was a, a vote uh, that was taken in, in Crimea that was not recognized by any any foreign powers. I mean, it was completely illegal. It was done at the barrel of a gun. And the Crimean people uh, voted to become a part of, of Russia. And, you know, that was the only choice. There, there, there wasn't another choice of what they could vote for. And, and since then, Russia has, as we say, annexed Crimea and um, has made it into basically a garrison state to the south of Ukraine, threatening Ukraine and controlling the people and abusing the Crimean Tatars that have remained. I mean, the, these are a people that have really um, suffered so much over history because, you know, one of the things that Russia and, and those who, who uh, support Russia say is, but the population is majority Russian in Crimea which is true. And why is that true? It's true because Stalin deported the Crimean Tatars, you know, during and after World War II and replaced them with Russians. So, you know, um, you know, if you're deporting the, 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 the people who live there uh, and replacing them with Russians, yeah, I guess it is majority Russian, but you have to really look at how that happened. So in 1991, when uh, Ukraine um, became independent, many of the Crimean Tatars or their descendants came back very difficult because, of course, Russians were living in their homes, et cetera, et cetera. But they, many of them tried to make new lives for themselves in their historic homeland. And, you know, now, you know, they've been forced to flee again or live under an occupation. I mean, it is it is absolutely tragic. And so you asked about the word annexation, Beth. So the U.S. government actually, you know, when I worked for the U.S. government, I had to say purported annexation, which means that you know, the Russians are saying they took it over, but we do not accept that internationally and legally. Now that I'm no longer in the U.S. government, I just say annexation. It seems simpler. It is a statement of, of fact, if not uh, legality. So what do you think Putin learned during the purported annexation that got us to the invasion of Ukraine? Or did, was that a part of the plan all the time? I mean, he know, there's a small window for reform and there's a small window for that kind of stuff. And he seems to realize that as well. After Crimea, forces under Russian control invaded uh, the east of uh, Ukraine, commonly known as the Donetsk uh, area. And there's fighting there again, as you know. And um, that war never stopped. I mean, there were two um, agreements in 2014, 2015 for a ceasefire, all sorts of things that the Russians needed to do, the Ukrainians needed to do. The Ukrainians did some of those things. The Russians did nothing. They didn't even ceasefire. So while this was not big news in the United States, I mean, three or four people a week died, you know, soldiers, but also civilians on the front line because people still live there. You know, this was a low level war in the heart of Europe. And when I was there as ambassador, I thought that that was enough uh, for Putin, that, you know, that destabilization that any war brings to a country, you know, the, the outflow of resources was enough because it was really screwing up uh, Ukraine's plans to look west. Um, you know, to EU, eventually EU membership, maybe even NATO membership, et cetera, et cetera. 
And it was just destabilizing in the country because Russia used other methods as well, assassinations right in the heart of Kiev, um, things like that, disinformation, uh, cyber attacks. I thought that that was enough, um, but I was wrong. Um, it, it turns out that what um, Putin had been saying about empire uh, and writing about empire most famously in his essay of uh, last summer, the summer, well, no, two summers ago, uh, summer of 21, about how the Ukrainians are not a real people, they don't have a real culture, Ukraine doesn't exist without Russia and being a part of Russia. But that was all true. He wanted to annex um, the entire country and control the entire country. I think, you know, as you said, Sarah, there were, I think he saw a window. He saw a window where he thought that the West was weak. Um, this was, just so you recall, shortly after our withdrawal from Afghanistan, which I think um, he probably viewed as a disaster and not well handled by the U.S. I think he he looked at the Biden administration and did not think that the Biden administration would be able to, you know, to bring uh, a, a group of allies and partners together to support Ukraine. He looked at Ukraine and because he has this weird obsession and belief that the Ukrainians are not a real people, he completely did not understand that they actually are and that they are going to fight back, which they did. And then, of course, there was the um, obvious incompetence, not to say criminal incompetence of the Russian uh, Russian military. And it goes to show you, I mean, there there are many things um, that obviously went wrong with the, the, the Russian invasion and continue to go wrong with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Part of the um, reason is corruption. Yeah, where, um, you know, they had huge military budgets, but it wasn't going to purpose. It was going into uh, the pockets of the generals, pockets probably of Putin and others. And, um, you know, they discovered that the hard way that they didn't have a military or equipment or trained soldiers that could actually do the job. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. 
Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash pantsuit. assessment of President Zelensky pre-invasion and and what is standing out to you as you have have watched him respond? So I knew him as a comedian and as a candidate. So I met him probably five or six times. And, you know, the first time I met him, you know, he made a a point of saying that he was a businessman, uh, that he had created this this entertainment conglomerate, you know, through his hard work, uh, through his creativity, um, you know, through his team. Uh, he was very intent um, that I not think of him as an entertainer, although he was an entertainer as well. He was clear to, to say, and he was very funny, of course, but he he saw himself or wanted to present himself as an entertain uh, as a as a business person, and um, and you know he deserves those uh, those kudos. So I um, actually left Ukraine for the last time as ambassador on May twentieth, um, twenty nineteen, which was the day of his inauguration. So I never actually worked with him as as president, but I would just know that, you know, he struggled as president in those first uh, first few years. You know, he went from uh, winning uh, the elections by 73 percent. I mean, that's a huge margin, 73 um, percent. And he was down in the 20s in terms of popularity ratings on on February 23rd, <laughs> um, 2022. So, you know, it's tough to be president under any circumstances in any country. And I think he found that out. Um, and, and so he was he was struggling and very focused. Um, I was uh, in Ukraine right before the war started and he was very focused on the internal political situation and, you know, his position and upcoming elections in 2024 and trying to position himself in the right way. So, you know, the big question uh, before the war in, in many circles in the United States and elsewhere, um, including Ukraine, was you know, could this comedian businessman, now president, could he be the wartime leader to lead a country against Russia? And, you know, um, I, I mean, I, I wasn't sure, uh, but a very, very quickly, Zelensky established himself as, you know, and this is a cliche, but it's it's apt, you know, as, as uh, the Churchill of our times. I mean, I'll just recall for you, um, you know, the Russians were obviously throwing everything at, at Ukraine militarily, but also disinformation wise and, um, you know, putting out that 
Um, you know, pathetic Zelensky had fled the country. He was a coward. You know, Ukraine was the capital was about to fall and all these things. And, you know, if you're sitting in some village, you know, in rural Ukraine, you don't know any different. Zelensky went out when, um, you know, I think day two or three with his team in the very recognizable square um, in front of the presidential building. And he said, President Tut, which means the president is here. And he pointed to his team and, you know, he, you know, gave one of those rousing speeches of, uh, you know, Ukraine is not going to give up. And it was electrifying to the nation. To the world. I remember it. And I'm not Ukrainian. (laughs) Vividly. Remember it vividly. Yeah, it was it was really incredible. And, you know, he has continued doing almost every night. He doesn't address to the Ukrainian people in one form of social media or another. I mean, it is incredible. He is a really gifted communicator, you pointed out to international audiences, you know, so he comes here and he cites, you know, Pearl Harbor and our history to us. He goes to Britain and he talks about Winston Churchill and quotes, you know, paraphrases him. It is incredible. Um, I mean, he uses his background as an entertainer, as a communicator to really great effect. And it has galvanized, as I said, the country and as you said, the world. So you went to Ukraine recently, and what did you see? Where do you feel like we are with his leadership, with the continued support from Western nations? You know, I, the, the the reporting is pretty consistent. Putin feels like he's just going to wait it out, and the West support will flag, and then he can come in. What, what's your assessment of that strategy and where we're at? You know, what my military colleagues tell me is long war, short war, there's no way that Russia can actually win. But the strong impression that I had when I was in Ukraine is that the Ukrainian people um, are uh, courageous, they are committed, they are confident they are going to win. Um, But they are also tired. Uh, It's been a year. And they are wondering, you know, victory at what cost? Because you can measure the cost in many different ways, but every Ukrainian is measuring that cost in lives lost. Uh, And how many more lives are going to need to be lost? And we in the West, in the U.S., um, have the ability to um, to lower that cost. And I think we should, um, because I think a short-term war is in Ukraine's interest. And so, you know, that that saying that um, not just the Biden administration, but other governments have, a, um, you know, we'll be with you for as long as it takes. I think we need to change that motto to we will be with you and provide you as much as you need as quickly as you need so you can win Ukraine. Ukraine needs to win. Ukraine needs to win for itself, uh, for all the obvious reasons, because this is a war of, it's an existential war for Ukraine where Putin has declared that they don't exist as a people. And while in the beginning, uh, the Ukrainians were negotiating and putting a lot on the table, according to the media, you know, the idea of neutrality, um, the idea, you know, ceding some land, et cetera, et cetera. And then the Ukrainians started liberating some of the towns around Kyiv, including Bucha, the famous Bucha. And they saw, you know, people who had been tortured. They saw civilians dead. They saw women who had been raped, missing children, deported to to Russia to hopefully be found at some point, but maybe not. And the Ukrainian people and Zelensky personally at that point understood that this was an existential war that they had a choice to fight on or to be russified or to be killed by the Russians. 
that the Russians were, were not going to allow them to live on as a Ukrainian people. And so they, the only option the Ukrainians really have is, is to continue to fight. And they are absolutely determined to do so. And that is as a society. Because, you know, one of the, 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 the really strong impressions that you have when you're in Ukraine is that this is a completely mobilized society, that people do what they see needs to get done. Start a soup kitchen, drive an ambulance, fix vehicles and drive them to the front because they, they need more of a particular kind of vehicle. They do whatever they see needs to be done, not because President Zelensky has said you need to do X or the mayor has said that, but because it's a mobilized society and they are all helping each other and helping the military first and foremost. So, I mean, clearly for Ukraine, it's important to win. But why is it important for the United States? You know, I think as, as so often happens, Zelensky said it best uh, when he addressed Congress back in December. He said, you know, what you are doing is not charity. It's an investment in your security and in global security. And I think that is exactly right. Because Putin has told us in his writings, in his actions, that he's going to keep on going if he gets Ukraine. If he's rewarded with some form of victory, uh, if he doesn't get all of Ukraine, he's going to regroup, rearm, and come back for more when he thinks we're chasing the next shiny object. And if he gets all of Ukraine, he will go you know, further west. He's told us that. And when you look at the history of what he did in Chechnya, what he did in Georgia, taking two chunks of Georgia, Ukraine in 2014, Syria, now Ukraine again, I think we need to believe him. I think we need to understand that he's not going to be satisfied. He will keep on going. And if Russia is not defeated in Ukraine, we in the West are going to need to deal with Russia again at some later point, which may not be a point that is um, of our choosing to our advantage. And so it's just best to deal with this issue now. Well, and it's so frustrating because it's like the idea that, well, it's dragging on for too long, as if we don't have any control over that, as if we couldn't provide, like you said, what they need to end this, like to to fully invest. Because I think what the point you made is so important and deserves emphasis, which is sometimes the debate gets set up as if, well, when this war is over, then it's done and we don't have to worry about this anymore. No, no, no. We'll just have to worry about him somewhere else that could be worse or more expensive or more horrific, even though this has been pretty horrific. And I think that we got to get stuck in this, this binary where it's like this continues or this ends, and that's the decision we're making when that is not the decision we're making. Yeah, yeah. And I think also, you know, right now there is a real focus on China, understandably, but how we support Ukraine, how we deal with um, shoring up a democracy, how we deal encountering Russia, the Chinese are watching. So are other authoritarian regimes and they are taking lessons. And if we don't defend Ukraine properly, the Chinese are going to take note. And, you know, there's a, a lot been written recently uh, about how China is upping its, um, its production of nuclear weapons because they can see the effect of the threats of Putin and his entourage uh, that they might use nuclear, uh, tactical nuclear weapons. And while, you know, you, you never want to discount that, you want to like really look at this, uh, anything having to do with nuclear weapons very, very carefully. I think most uh, experts believe that it is unlikely that Putin is going to use uh, tactical nukes. It brings him no advantage. He would be isolated in the international community even more so right now. Uh, I mean, the list goes on. And, you know, what do you, what do, you do for an encore, right? I mean, if you 
um, you know, the threat is 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 powerful, more powerful in some ways than the actual use of uh, a weapon that will contaminate the battlefield you expect your uh, soldiers to to go onto. But I think because we are concerned about uh, the use of nuclear weapons, we are uh, in some ways self-deterring from giving Ukraine all that it needs in order to win. And um, China, take a note. So, you know, from my perspective, the road to managing China goes through Ukraine. Is there a path for Ukrainian victory here that allows Putin to remain in power? What is what is the way this ends for, for Russia? That is such a good question. You know, Putin has um, unchecked power in Russia. You know, I, I recently heard somebody comment that Oh, you know, I, I never thought I would say I missed the days of the Politburo. <laughs> but, you know, the Politburo was a council that ruled the Soviet Union. And the first secretary of the Communist Party, I mean, he was, you know, definitely uh, the, the most powerful person, but he still had to answer to the Politburo. And Putin doesn't have to answer to anyone. So on the one hand, that's <laughs> never good. On the other hand, um, he could choose, uh, not that he's going to, he could choose to withdraw from Ukraine. He could choose to present that as some sort of a victory. And the Russian people would um, probably buy it or at least not um, protest or, you know, say anything else. Um, he could choose to do that. And, you know, who knows, maybe the uh, Russian military would be relieved um, because they had rather a tough go of it. But uh, I, I think all of that is 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 very, uh, very unlikely. I think it's going to be important that Ukraine win and force Russia out because Russia has to give up, you know, for there to be stability in the region, Russia has to give up its rails of empire, that it can change borders, forcibly take whatever it wants because it can. I mean, that's, you know, Russia is an historically expansionistic country, but, you know, other countries have given up their dreams of empire. Look at the UK, look at France, you know, I mean, the list goes on. And uh, Russia um, needs you know, needs to join this century, um, maybe the last century, actually, <laughs> and, um, and move forward um, because that is certainly in the interests of European and global security, but it's also in Russia's interests so that Russia can, uh, you know, over time rejoin uh, the community of nations. Well, before we wrap up, we so appreciate your expertise on all these things. Um, we do want to talk a little bit about your memoir, Lessons from the Edge. It's full of incredible stories. I want to take a hard turn because you obviously encountered an enormous amount of discrimination in the State Department during your career. You write about it, I think, so transparently and so beautifully and empoweringly. And I really wanted you to share the story of Allison Palmer's lawsuit and how that impacted your career and your decision not to talk about it for a long time and your decision to share it in the memoir, because I think it is just incredible. So the State Department, when I joined in prehistory. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. Uh, so I joined in 1986. And, you know, the State Department reflected society as a whole. I mean, there just weren't that many women uh, in even in business um, and um, certainly not at the State Department. And there were very few women in leadership positions. So it was it was a man's world. Uh, and men felt uh, very comfortable. My boss telling my parents that, um, you know, women can't be real foreign, real foreign service officers, certainly not political officers. 
um, that sort of thing. And, you know, feeling very comfortable saying that. This is at the time that I was a political officer working for him. So that was very, you know, off-putting. And, but there were, you know, pioneers who had joined the Foreign Service as officers decades before I had. I mean, you know, they must have been made of, you know, steel. (laughs) And um, one of those women was Alison Palmer. And she was constantly um, passed over for jobs and promotions because, you know, the man needed it because the man had a family to support, that sort of thing. She uh, won her her lawsuit and was, um, you know, got whatever compensation. But then she instituted a class action lawsuit against the State Department. And the State Department fought it tooth and nail for decades. And, you know, within the State Department, which, you know, all, all the, most of the bosses were male, um, they, they felt that this was a terrible thing, that, you know, uh, this woman was trying to upend the system uh, and to put unqualified women in places where, you know, the men deserve to be, the white men deserve to be. So that's the environment that I came into the Foreign Service. And in 1992, an appellate court, after decades, uh, ruled in um, in Alison Palmer's favor in the class action suit. And they ruled that the State Department was uh, discriminating in how it wrote the exam for intake, how they brought women, uh, brought people into the State Department, um, how they um, assigned specialties uh, to women, um, how they uh, assigned jobs to women and how they promoted women. So it was a clean sweep. (laughs) The State Department was discriminating against women in all categories. And so, you know, a number of um, reforms were instituted that I think benefited, you know, not just women, but the the institution as a whole. And But 14 women uh, were uh, given spots um, to change their specialty if they wanted to. And I was notified um, that I qualified to compete for this. Uh, so I competed for it and I got it. And that's how I got the job uh, as political officer in Moscow. So off I went. And that's where I had the boss who said, you know, women can't be political officers. So if I had any um, doubts that I should have kept this to myself, I was confirmed in that judgment. And, you know, kind of every job I thought, you know, I'm not going to share this information because people are going to look at me differently. They're going to look at me as I don't deserve to be in this job. And I continued that way of thinking, kind of the gaslighting was so strong in my head, you know, through three ambassadorships where I didn't share this information with um, anybody in the State Department because I I wanted them to think that I deserved to be in the job through my uh, hard work and, um, and good work. And I had a track record of, you know, 30 years, and yet I was still insecure about this. And when I wrote the book, I thought, you know, do I do I include this? Do I finally sort of reveal uh, this? And, you know, I talked to a number of friends and also I talked to friends about, you know, some of the other stories of discrimination and um, so forth at the State Department. And I felt while I didn't want it to be the only thing I wrote about it, I thought it was important for people to understand what that world was like uh, and that we have come a long way. But we still have a long way to go. I thought that that was really important. Well, I think it's as the center point of all these other stories was so incredible. And I think the way you write very transparently about your bosses, and this is how it was treated, and this is how it impacted my work. I mean, you are absolutely a pioneer. It might have been the second (laughs) wave. 
and you are absolutely made of steel. And I, I think we, we even even touched on, you know, the impeachment and the area in which I think most people identify you as being made of steel. But I think it's just an incredible story. And I think you wrote about it just really, really beautifully in the context of your incredible, y'all, there is bullet dodging. She gets to meet Princess Diana. I cannot even sum up the stories in this book. They're, it's incredible. I highly recommend it. It's, it's such a beautiful memoir. Great job. Thank you so much. I really, I, I really appreciate it. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15.
We always end our show talking about something outside of politics because we try to remember that we're all more than one thing. And thinking about you're more than a diplomat and Ukraine is more than its history with Russia and its history with corruption and this this war. So I wonder if you could tell us about some aspect of Ukrainian culture, cuisine or music or art, something that you really love about being in Ukraine. Well, so the cultural life is so, so vibrant. And as I now understand, um, often happens during times of war, the cultural scene in Ukraine has just taken off exponentially. You know, whether it's music, whether it's writing, and um, that I think is really reaffirming. Uh, you know, I think we're back to politics again. But yeah, it's 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 um, it's it's just wonderful to see, and it's really reaffirming. The other thing I love about Ukrainian the Ukrainian people is they, um, you know, we've all seen the resilience, um, but um, they have a great sense of humor. So I'll give you just one example, um, and, and and humor is one of the ways they're dealing with the war. Well, and art, you're fighting for something, right? Yeah. yeah. And you are just putting the lie to Putin saying that there is no culture. Mm. Uh, before I tell you the joke, I'll, I'll uh, just say one other thing. Um, this year, um, the um, a Ukrainian uh, woman, uh, Alexandra Matvichuk, she um, uh, shared the, the Nobel Peace Prize with, uh, with another, uh, another person. And when I talked to her before she went to accept uh, this award, and she speaks fluent English. She said that she was going to accept this award, you know, in an international setting in Ukrainian because Putin tells us we don't have a language, but I'm going to show him and I'm going to show the world that we do. So the joke uh, is that um, not this is not a funny setting, but um, you'll recall that in October, um, Putin, you know, expanded the total war against the Ukrainian people to the missile and drone strikes against the civilian population and civilian infrastructure. And, um, you know, the lights went out for a a long period of time. And so um, so (laughs) the Ukrainians said, you know, Putin single-handedly is going to be responsible for the biggest baby boom ever. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that. And you you just have to love it. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and expertise and your stories. It's been a a real pleasure to talk with you. Yes. Thank you so much. What a treat. Well, it has been a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much to Ambassador Yovanovitch for her time and her generosity. Thank you to all of you for listening. I want to remind you that if you'd like a transcript of this conversation or of any of our episodes, you can find that on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. Just click on the podcast link and it will take you to all of our show notes that include full transcripts of the episodes. We'll be back in your ears on Friday. Until then, have the best week available to you. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. 
Molly Coors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Pettins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.